Hello friends. Welcome to a special edition of Everywhere Radio. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly, and I'm your host, Whitney Kimball Coe. Usually, each episode, I spotlight the good, scrappy, joyful ways rural people and their allies are building a more inclusive nation. But this week, I'm doing something a little bit different. This week, I'm highlighting a conversation that was featured at Rural Assembly Everywhere a few weeks ago between two writers. Skylar Baker-Jordan and Nima Avashia. Skylar and Nima talk about Nima's new book, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer, an Indian in a Mountain Place. There are some incredibly funny and poignant moments in this conversation, and I hope you love it as much as I do. Hello, everybody. My name is Skylar Baker-Jordan, and today I am very excited to be joined by author Nima Avashia. She is the author of Another Appalachia, uh, Coming Up Queer, an Indian in a Mountain Place. It's out from West Virginia University Press, uh, if I'm correct. And it is a fantastic read. Some of you will have read my review of it in The Daily Yonder, but for those of you who don't, we have a real treat in store for you today because I am very excited to introduce Nima. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Skylar. It's so good to be here with you. It's great to have you here. I was absolutely thrilled when Whitney uh, contacted me and asked if I would like to be in conversation with you today because uh, in case it didn't come through in my review, I absolutely love, love, love this book. It is is, I think, one of the most important and timely books of the year. I think that it puts a human and accurate face on Appalachia, which is not something that we often get. We are often stereotyped uh, and um, not in a very <laughs> correct way. Um, and so this book really does, I think, a, a, a great job of correcting the record. Um one thing, after I having said that, though, I do want to start by reading a small paragraph um, and then having you respond to it, um, because I this paragraph really summed it up for me. All right. You were talking about visiting the state parks, the state parks in West Virginia with your, correct me if I say this wrong, Gujarati uh, relations, your inherited family, as you call them, and you write beautifully, I think, about the love of place that is so true to so many Appalachians. And I, I just quote here, through these trips, I grew to love the wild and wonderful aspects of West Virginia, even as I struggled with the religious and racial elements. Its natural beauty settled into my sensory memory right next to the Hindu puja. West Virginia is the only home I know, though it is not a home that always loves me back. Nemo, how does it feel to love a place that doesn't always love you back? I think that's probably a feeling that is very familiar for a lot of queer people um, in Appalachia and not just in Appalachia, but really in 35 states in, in the United States right now, um, as we're seeing anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ um, and anti-BIPOC legislation just come down in state houses all over the country. I, I wish that was an experience that was only mine, but I actually think it's shared by increasingly more and more people um, who feel like they're really grounded in place and in the people who make up that place for them, but that the sort of policy narrative around those places has become more and more uh, exclusive of their identities. Uh, and I think it's really hard. I think it makes you feel this very complex way of like, I love this place and I can't imagine like how this place has come to 
to want and will such harm on me and on people like me. It is a very interesting dynamic, I think, because you see so much increased social acceptance throughout the country. And, and that includes places like, you know, West Virginia and Kentucky. Uh, I've got the Kentucky flag right behind me. Like, it's my home state. I love it. Um, and, and I can experience it just on the ground, but you also see it reflected in polling. But like you said, in policy, it seems to be almost going backwards. Yeah, and I think there is this interesting tension of, um, so you and I know each other and we have a relationship with each other and I accept who you are as an individual. But because that policy doesn't necessarily land on me the way it lands on you, I don't feel an impetus to fight back against it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a really hard thing in this country is that too often, I think we've seen this with COVID actually is a really good example of this where it's like too often, if it doesn't directly affect me, I don't feel urgency about pushing back. I don't feel urgency about getting loud. I don't feel urgency about um, advocating in the opposite direction. And so then the voices that end up dominating the policy narrative are the angriest voices. Do you think that the, the sort of economic stagnation, oppression of Appalachia has a lot to do with that sort of feeling of fatalistic helplessness? I mean, I think it, it, it's probably hard for a lot of people to believe that their voices matter in some ways because um, so much of the policy narrative has excluded them also and hasn't met their needs and hasn't been responsive to their reality. So I do think there's a way in which also, like think about the West Virginia legislature and the things that they seem to prioritize relative to what people care about in the place, right? Like well, the roads in West Virginia right now are a disaster. But like, what are they like fighting about in the legislature until midnight on the last night of session? They're fighting about critical race theory. Yeah. And there's this massive disconnect between the needs of the people and what the policymakers are invested in. And so I think if you feel that continually, if you just feel like there's no response to my needs, um, then yeah, how do you believe that you saying anything is going to make a difference? Um, you can't get your potholes filled. So like, you know, like the day to day of your lived reality, you're not getting your needs met. So that's not happening, it's hard to believe, I think, that, that you have agency or that your voice matters um, because, because what's happening doesn't reflect your, your lived experiences. Yeah, I think that's uh, a really good point. And I think that a lot of the time people outside of the region think that Appalachia isn't their concern um, and they use it to sort of project the, and, and I think you, you really talk about this in your book um, with just the way that people reacted to you outside of the region when you tell them where they're from, where you're from. And it, it kind of reminded me of, uh, are you familiar with the comedian Dolce Sloan? Mm-hmm. Reminded me of this bit she does where uh, people in New York are saying, you must be so glad to be out of the South. It's so racist down there. And she said, what part of the South? You mean the part that starts at Canada and <laughs> ends at Mexico? <laughs> like, um, and I, I, I feel like people inside of Appalachia, and maybe you will disagree with this, maybe not, have internalized that in a way. Do you think that there's a lot of... Inter I don't want to say internalized helplessness or internalized hatred of the region. I just, for example, I know that I left the region in part, I spent more than a decade trying to run away from the mantle of Appalachian. Um, it didn't sort of gel with my the version of myself I thought that I saw 
and it was only much later into my 30s that I realized, actually, I can be all of these things at once. Right. So I think that uh, the filmmaker Ashley York, I don't know if you've seen her documentary, Hillbilly. No, not yet. I really want to watch it, though. Everybody should watch it. It's phenomenal. And I think that something that she sort of lays out in that documentary is this idea that the stereotypes that exist about Appalachia exist for a purpose. They exist because if you dehumanize people, then it makes it easier to do violence to them, right? And that violence can be like the violence that happened in a place like Germany during the Holocaust, but it can also be environmental violence. It can be sort of like the destruction of a natural world. It can be the stripping of resources from a place. Um, and so I think that, that that documentary really helped me to sort of think a little bit differently about why people feel the way they do and why their relationships end up being so complicated because it is like very much Appalachian people are dehumanized in the narrative. I think that G.D. Uh, Vance's book actually in a, in a really intense way dehumanized the people of Appalachia when he wrote about people as stereotypes or as tropes, he took away their humanity, right? And so what does it feel like when you're from a place and what does it feel like to be dehumanized? What does it feel like to, to experience that the narrative about you and about the region from your, that you're from is that like you're not full people, um, you're flat, you don't have nuance, you don't, you're not given complexity, you're just, oh, those people who vote against their interests, like, they're hopeless. Like that, when that's done to you, I think it really messes up your your self perception. And it can. It doesn't for some people. Some people are able to resist it, but I think it can really mess up your self perception. I think it can mess up your perception of place. I think it's really exhausting and difficult to constantly have that narrative of dehumanization pushed down on you, and like yeah. not either take parts of it on or feel like I have to reject all of this by leaving. Um, and that sometimes feels like the choices that people are pushed into. I'm either gonna accept it. Or I'm going to walk away completely. I, I guess, you know, what I want to know is how do people outside of the region react when you tell them that, yes, I am from West Virginia. Yes, I am Appalachian. Do they do they believe you? Do they know that there's this significant Indian community? So it's interesting. Uh, people don't know. I mean, initially they don't believe me. And then they believe me because I'm like, well, there's no reason I would lie to you about this. Right. Um, <laughs> But they don't, they don't know. And then their immediate response is like, wow, that must have been really hard, which in parts it was. But this is, again, a really interesting place where like, we're not talking about small numbers of people, right? Um, in the late 60s, after the passage of the Heart Seller Act, there was a really specific focus on recruiting immigrants from Asia who were high-skilled workers. And those folks, when they were coming to the United States, the places they were finding work were places where American high-skilled workers wouldn't go. So that's either rural areas or deeply urban areas, but not really anywhere else. And so there were Indian physicians in Appalachia, there are Filipino physicians in Appalachia, not in small numbers. Um, and But it is an interesting thing where it's kind of erased from the um, from the dominant narrative. I was listening to Appalachia yesterday and they had Professor Queerbilly on, Alana Anton on there. And she, she like said this phrase that I thought was so striking she called it symbolic annihilation, right? Which is this idea that like, if you're erased from the narrative, like you don't exist. Um, and I think that that is what has happened to black and brown people and queer people in Appalachia for a really long time, which is like, we get erased from the dominant narrative 
And then as individuals, we're kind of looking and we're like, well, if we don't exist, like, what what am I? Like, if you don't exist, like, it's kind of existential, right? Like, I'm here, but you don't believe I'm here. And so what does that mean for me? We'll be right back after this from The Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Xander Brown with The Daily Yonder. Check out The Yonder Report, a new weekly podcast rounding up the latest rural news. Produced by The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Everywhere Radio. It's interesting we're talking about Appalachia, and yet we're both people who have left. Well, I've come back since then, but I left. I went and spent seven, eight years in Chicago. Um... I you dig deep into your upbringing in rural America and specifically in Appalachia. Yet you also fled to the big city. Um, why is my first question, and then I'll follow up with a more in-depth question. Yeah, I mean the why is pretty straightforward. The why is like no adults in my life were telling me that staying was an option. Yeah, not teachers, not parents, not neighbors, like nobody presented it as an option you know by the time i was graduating from high school the chemical valley which is uh, the area where i grew up like it was really falling apart like the writing was on the wall jobs were just like leaving 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 everything was shutting down and i think the narrative was there's no work here you gotta go um and i think a lot about what would it have looked like if someone said you know you can stay like here are ways that you can stay like i didn't have the vision to see that for myself. I have profound respect for young people who are in Appalachia right now who can see that for themselves. I didn't have it. Um, I didn't know how to see that. Um, and and so I left and I think I've carried a lot of guilt about the leaving. And then I had a really interesting conversation with someone a, a few months ago who said, what are you talking about? Like, leaving is the quintessentially Appalachian thing to do. Like, <laughs> I, I makes you Appalachian in a way. Like. That's what we reading like. your book and you you ask the question and I'm paraphrasing here do I even have any claim to the mantle Appalachian considering my family came there for a job and then left because they needed to find work and I thought to myself at the time well leaving because you need to find work is about the most quintessentially Appalachian thing that you could do like <laughs> I actually think you might have written that in your review. I think that might be what I'm thinking of right now. I was like, that's that's about as Appalachian as it gets right there. <laughs> Which was like, very freeing for me. I was like, oh, okay. Like, I guess I never thought about it that way, but you're right. And that's also hard. Um, and I also just, I am like continually like so inspired by by young people who are making the decision to stay and who are saying like, whatever you're telling me about what I can and can't do or who I can and can't be, like, I'm not going to let that define me, right? I have friends from growing up who are queer people who still live in the town where I grew up. I know folks who are doing amazing organizing work, like, in in all kinds of places. Ray Geringer and the Country Queers podcast, I'm like, oh, my God, to be Ray. Like, (laughs) I am so inspired by Ray. And I'm like, I don't know how Ray is Ray. Like, how did Ray become Ray and how am I me? I don't know. Um, but I do feel really, really inspired by people who are who just had more foresight, I think, than I did. You grew up without a lot of blood relations around you. Um, how do you maintain those relationships in general? Because um, I think the, the belief is a lot of people have is that it's harder to maintain 
relationships with people who aren't related to you. Family, you feel a sense of obligation to reach out. Friends kind of go by the wayside sometimes. How do you maintain those relationships with, you know, through the time and the distance and the physical space between you, but also uh, the political distance between you and some of the people back home? I think the, the physical distance stuff has been easier to surmount, right? I go back. I'm going back next week. Like, I go back. I think, like, in a lot of ways, social media has been a blessing. There's also curses around it. <laughs> in terms of, like, staying connected to people, like, I think it is a way that you can do that. You know, like, I have an auntie group text. It's awesome. Like, I have ways in which we're able to stay connected to each other. And those bonds are also so tight that it's, like, you don't have to talk all the time, right? Like, I'm going home next week, and there's, like, a fight among the aunties about where I'm staying. They're not literally fighting with each other, but it's, like, you know, there's some back and forth about where does it make most sense for you to stay, um, which is lovely, and, like, you know, we'll figure it out. But I think the political lines have been harder to navigate, and I think have eroded some relationships in ways that are really painful um, that I don't. Like that—that that is the place where I feel like if you have blood in common, like maybe you would still keep going back to the table because you you shared blood, and so you, you know, you'd have to go to Thanksgiving or you'd end up at that wedding together. Yeah. I think when you don't share blood and your political views have become so divergent, it becomes harder and harder to even figure out how are we going to share space, and should we share space? Does that make sense, or have we just really? gone down incredibly different paths from each other and the best thing we can do is just give each other the grace of being like we loved each other and we're gonna like let just let that stand one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was your attempt to square that circle and to really try and not only maintain those relationships with uh, was it Mr. B, I think is what you called him in the book, uh, and and other other folks back home who, you know, had some very, very loud and provocative things to say about all sorts of, of different people who weren't straight, white, Christian, native-born Americans, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. I wonder how do you find the empathy to do that? How do you dig down and try to, because so many people have just been so quick to write folks off and, and you may have written some people off, but the sense I got from the book was that you really tried not to do that. Yeah. And how I'm did you find the strength and wisdom? I mean, I think the thing is that um, you can't go back to where I grew up and not understand why people would be angry and hurting. No policymaker or politician at all is saying, here's a different vision for this region. Here's a different explanation for why things are the way they are. You have the Vance explanation, which is like people are lazy and, you know, just- Genetically predispositioned to right. skullduggery or whatever poverty, it is. Yeah. Whatever garbage rhetoric that is. These people just can't do better for themselves. And then you have, the xenophobic, well, now he's going into the other thing, which is the xenophobic narrative, which is like, oh, everything that's happening in Ohio and West Virginia and Kentucky is because people are coming over the border and immigrants are taking your jobs and they're bringing drugs into our country. Like, those are the narratives that people are being offered. Appalachian Which is such a different, it's a reversal of what they were saying 20 years ago when it was, it's people in those countries taking our jobs, you right. know? Those right. jobs are going overseas. Now it's they're coming here and taking them. Make your mind up. 
Like, well, and those, right. And it, those jobs did go. That yeah, happened. They did. Right? They did. But, but again, like, there's no. That was like my biggest beef with that book was like, you're not talking about that. You're not talking about the fact that that was a choice that corporations made and the government let them get away with, which is to take all those jobs and send them somewhere else. Like that, right. those were decisions that were made, right? Like, so the narratives you're being offered are narratives that you're either culturally deficient or that immigrants are to blame and queer people are to blame and black people are to blame. And there, there isn't another narrative. You talked about being gender nonconforming in Appalachia and coming up as, you know, somebody who fell outside of the expected gender roles and norms that I think um, society thrusts upon us at a very early age. I talk about this in the book, but like when I brought my partner back to Appalachia, she kind of jokes that there, there's this game we play called Hillbilly or Lesbian, right? Because like, <laughs> it's not uncommon for older women in Appalachia to have short hair. No, it's not. And cargo pants or a t-shirt. Like, it's not that uncommon. <laughs> is that like those gender norms seem to fall away after about like 40 i'm 43 now right like they they are most intense and most oppressive i think in your adolescence i think so um, yeah i mean early childhood through adolescence but i think there is a point at which they seem to stop for women or like people who present as women maybe they they like they wane a little bit because this is not unusual like short hair is <laughs> I mean, my hair maybe is a little bit more like my stylist would kill me if I said that, like, they hadn't done anything. But, like, it's a little bit more styled maybe than that, like, late 40s, early 50s Appalachian cut, you know? But, but yeah, I do they think... They exactly the type of women you're talking about, you know, too. Like, I, they were yes. pumping gas at the gas station today when you were there. Like It is, yes. like, a very, very Appalachian slash lesbian chic uh, aesthetic. Like, and you're not really sure which. I mean, they could be both. They could be one. They could be the other. You're not sure, and it's fine. It's great. Like, but I do think the intensity around those norms is is highest for young people, which is part of why I felt like this book was so important to write, um, and part of why that hair essay. I feel like I've used it with my students, and like I want people to use it with young people because I think it is most intense when you're trying to figure out your identity and you're getting messages right, right. about like this is what you should look like and this is what you shouldn't look like and this is right and this is wrong like that's the point at which i think young people are trying to really be like wait a minute like where am i in this um where do i fall in all this how do i figure out who i'm supposed to be it's also what's so intense for me with these laws that are being passed where they're like and these politicians calling like lgbtq teachers groomers like i feel so like I mean, they just, they clearly don't know how hard it is to figure that stuff out. And like how much one person offering you a hand and saying like, I, I can maybe help make this a little easier for you. Like how much of a difference that can make for a young person, right? For that to be criminalized, like it's so painful to me because like I didn't have those people. I didn't have anyone to be like, okay, like I kind of understand maybe what's going on with you. And like, maybe I can be helpful. Um, and that stuff, it's life or death stuff. Like, it's not small. People don't understand that. But it really is for queer kids. It can, it can make a big difference. Being seen and being invisible, those things are life or death things. So this mentality that like, if you're a teacher and you're out, or if you're a teacher and you make space for queer kids in your classroom, you're quote grooming. Uh, I find it so upsetting because I, 
I really, I, I think it's like profoundly violent. I think that these people are casting themselves as protectors and they're actually 100% the opposite of protectors. They are harming children, um, queer children who are, are gonna just really suffer because they won't have guideposts. Or if they do, their teachers are, in, I mean, there was just a teacher in Kentucky who literally wrote on their board, like, you're loved and you're welcome and lost their job because of that. Like, I know. I mean, it feels to me like a real crisis that, um, again, like, I just don't think the volume is loud enough. Uh, I think there are a lot of good and caring people in Appalachia who don't think this is their fight. And, and it's their fight because they have queer kids as neighbors. They have queer kids in their families. They coach teams with queer kids on them. It is their fight. Whether they see it as their fight or not, it's their fight. Because those kids are really at risk with this stuff. There's a little girl somewhere in Appalachia. This seems like a really good time to ask this question. Um, but there's a little girl somewhere out there. Maybe she's a person of color. Maybe she's the daughter of immigrants. Maybe she's queer. Maybe she's gender nonconforming. Maybe she's some combination of these or all of these things. Um, let's assume that little girl is watching this right now. What would you say to her? <laughs> You're going to make me cry. <laughs> um... um thing I would want to say that like uh, there's going to be a lot of really hard moments um, like way too many more than anybody should have to experience but that like if she can just hang in there and find her people she's going to be okay and that every person is not going to be your person and they don't have to be but you have to find your people and your people might not be your family your people might not be your church community. Your people might not, you might not know where they are right now, but they're out there. Um, and that for all of us, like the thing that makes this life worth living and bearable, and in some cases even wonderful, is like when we find our people. And so I think like reducing your expectation that the people around you are automatically going to be your people and making it instead, like giving yourself permission to be like, yeah, these people aren't it. And that's okay, because they're out there and I'm gonna find them. I think if I could help young people to have that frame and be able to hang in there until they can find their people, I think that's that's all I want for them. Wow. I can't wait to see what comes in the future for you. And I want everyone out there to go and pick up another Appalachia coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. It is available wherever you get your books now. Um, and it is absolutely one of the most important books you will read this year. It really recontextualizes what it means to be Appalachian. And I think a very accurate and um, flattering light. You really write very warmly about about the region that that brought you up so yeah i have a lot of warmth for it so thank you skylar for doing this i really Nima, thank it. you so much you have a wonderful evening bye everyone if you enjoyed everywhere radio we'd love for you to consider subscribing to the general rural assembly newsletter that's where we promote new offerings from the assembly and we amplify the good work of our many partners across the country We've also launched a new policy advocacy newsletter that comes to inboxes on Mondays to help you start each week with a quick take on the top issues that we're tracking across the nation. Everything from broadband policy to rural vaccinations. Just head over to ruralassembly.org to sign up. If you're a true fan of Everywhere Radio, please let us know by rating us wherever you get your podcast. 
if this isn't your cup of tea, that's no biggie, it's fun. And we'd like to thank our media partner, The Daily Yonder. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly. Our senior producer is Joel Cohen, and our associate producers are Xander Brown and Teresa Collins. And we're grateful for the love and support of the whole team at the Center for Rural Strategies. Love you, mean it. You can be anywhere, we'll be everywhere. <laughs>